You know, today is an interesting Sabbath. You may have never considered this before, but today's Sabbath is unique, and that is the only weekly Sabbath guaranteed to sit between two annual, annual holy days each and every year. Curiously, there are eight days in between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. And so every year we will have exactly one, that's right, one and only one Sabbath between these two holy days, which span a total of ten days. In fact, the Jews have a name for this single Sabbath, which falls between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. They call it Shabbat Shuvah, meaning the Sabbath of return, or the Sabbath of repentance. Now, as we think about these holy days and the uniqueness of the Sabbath which sits between them, it leads to several questions. Perhaps one of the most obvious questions is, what events are foreshadowed by this time? What events occur between Jesus Christ's return at the last trump and when Satan is bound is pictured by the Day of Atonement? And then, of course, what lessons can we learn by examining such events? Now, while these questions are certainly fascinating, and we will explore them more during this message, there is another question, however, I'd like to focus on today. It's a question I propose is especially worthwhile to consider as we sit in the midst of these two holy days. And that question is, does God's word work? Does God's word work? Or in other words, will following the instructions in this book, the Bible, really make a positive difference in your day-to-day life? Does God's word work? Now, I expect, I certainly hope, you'd all answer yes. In fact, I don't think most of you would be sitting here today if you had not witnessed many positive fruits produced through obedience to God's laws. So here's the tough part. Does God's word always work? Does following the instructions in this book yield only positive results in each and every situation? Will it make every relationship, every outcome for every person involved turn out well? To dig into this question, does God's word work, we must consider it from the perspective of someone who has been striving to follow God's word. They've been striving to follow God's instructions, and yet they're being harassed by their boss. They're bullied at school. They've been betrayed by a friend. They're going through a divorce. They've been discriminated against because of their race. They're being cheated on by their spouse. They've been falsely accused. They're being unjustly sued. They've had lies and gossip crucify their good name. If God's word works, then how can someone striving to follow it experience any of this? Consider this list again. Most of these are mostly relationship things harassed by a boss, bullied at school, betrayed by a friend, an unwanted divorce, discriminated because of your race. 
cheated on by your spouse, falsely accused, unjustly sued, have had lies and gossip crucify your good name. Is it possible for someone who has put their whole being into following instructions described in this book to experience such horrible things? Well, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, you all know of David's big mistake with Bathsheba and the murder of her, her husband Uriah the Hittite. Because of this sin, which David committed later in life, he went through some very difficult times. His infant son died, and his whole family was thrown into heart-wrenching turmoil. David's oldest son, Amnon, for instance, was killed for raping one of his half-sisters. David's son, Absalom, was killed during a rebellion against his own father. And then after David's death, his son, Adonijah, would be killed for conspiring against Solomon. David's whole life was filled with trials and turmoil, but his latter years were especially grievous. Of course, God was very displeased with David for his actions toward Uriah and Bathsheba, so he sends Nathan the prophet to correct him. Now, as you know, most people don't like to be told they're wrong. They will often react very negatively. And if you tell such things to a king, well, you could end up losing your head. So rather than diving straight into David's sin, Nathan first engages David by telling him his story. It's a story that serves an analogy for what David has just done. Now, this story is captured in 2 Samuel chapter 12, so let's read it. But, but I want to point out something very interesting in verse 6. So let's start in verse 1. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich men had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor men had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Wow. What a terrible story describing the stinginess and cruelty of this rich man. David is absolutely disgusted by it. Verse 5. So David's anger is greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. Now notice this. David says the man who has committed this crime shall restore fourfold, four times. We'll come back to that thought later, but let's for now continue on in verse 6. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, here's where the part of the story shifts into the main point, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have also given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. 
You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Now this phrase, in the sight of the sun, means all this is going to happen in broad daylight for everyone to see, in contrast to the adultery and murder which David had tried desperately to conceal. Of course, you know the story. David repents of this sin. But still, as God predicted, the sword does not depart from his house and an adversary is raised up from within his own family. David's son Absalom leads a rebellion and sets up a tent on top of David's house. There on this rooftop, Absalom violates David's concubines, reminiscent of the day when David walked the same rooftop and observed Bathsheba bathing. Now this next part requires some inference, but I find it curious how in verse 6, David says the man who killed the lamb must pay four times the amount. Remember in verse 6 it said fourfold. Is it a coincidence that David would lose four of his children? The fact is four of David's children died premature deaths. His infant son from Bathsheba, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. Could it be that their premature deaths were a direct consequence of David's sin? We know at least two were directly related. But regardless, it is apparent that David paid bitterly for the sin that he committed. His latter life was extremely difficult because because he strayed from following instructions outlined in this book. Of course, years before David's adultery with Bathsheba, and in contrast to the trouble David brought on himself, David suffered some incredible strife He didn't do anything wrong to deserve. To see what I'm talking about, let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel 18, verse 28 through 29. After David is anointed and kills the Philistine giant Goliath, Saul makes David a leader in the Israelite army. David is very successful fighting the Philistines, and these successes, they make Saul jealous. Instead of viewing David as his loyal servant as David truly was, Saul sees David as his enemy. Notice verse 28 in 1 Samuel 18, verse 28. The Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Saul's daughter Mishael loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy continually. Saul repeatedly tries to kill David, not because of anything that David has done wrong at this point, but because God was with David, blessing him. Skip over a few verses to 1 Samuel 19, verse 4 through 5. 1 Samuel 19, verse 4 through 5. Notice that not only is Saul's daughter Mishael in love with David, but notice what Saul's son Jonathan thinks about him. 1 Samuel 19, verse 4. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you. 
and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without, without cause? David has only done good to Saul and his family, and yet Saul wants to kill him. Saul's wrong attitude towards David causes him a great deal of trouble. For what appears to be at least 10 years, David must wander as a fugitive, running for his life. David is forced to leave his home. He's forced to leave his wife, Saul's daughter, Michal, and he's forced to leave his best friend, Saul's son, Jonathan. David's world is thrown into utter turmoil. His life is full of agony and distress for doing Saul good, for doing his best to live by instructions taught in this book. So then back to our question. If God's word works, then why does David go through all this before his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah? Couldn't a person look at David's life as a young man and conclude that God's word does not work? Now, some might say, well, hold on. Wait a minute. None of us follow God's word perfectly. We all come at short, up short and have sinned. The reason why people go through these things is because we are not perfect. Yes, David may have strived to follow God's instructions, but he was still flawed, even as a young man. That's why David experienced so much trouble from Saul. Really? Is it true that suffering mistreatment from others is contingent on you sinning? God called Job the most righteous man on earth, and yet we know what Job went through. In fact, Job's friends tried to use a similar argument against him to erroneously explain why his life suddenly turned so bad. And if David and Job's story isn't enough, simply consider our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who committed no sin. Jesus Christ committed no sin, and yet he was harassed by the Pharisees, condemned by his own people, ridiculed for stating the truth, beaten without a cause, falsely accused of blaspheming God's name, crucified for only doing good. If God's word works, then why do people following this book sometimes have it so difficult? If God's word always works, then why did it not work better for David in his relationship with Saul? Or better for Job in the eyes of his friends? Or better for Jesus during his time here on earth? Should we instead conclude that God's word does not work? 
And if God's word does not appear to be working today, what value is there in following it? Well, this is the dilemma posed by a man named Asaph in the book of Psalms. So please turn there to Psalms chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73. In this song, Asaph describes how he has strived to do what's right, and yet he suffers every morning. At the same time, he watches as wicked people, people not following this book, seem to be prospering their entire lives. The injustices of this world grieve Asaph so much, they nearly cause him to stumble, to turn away from following God's instructions. So let's read now Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. 70, Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could desire or wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Dropping down now to verse 13. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Or I prefer the way the Holman Bible translates this section, which has Asaph asking the question in verse 13. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. No, Asaph has strived to do what's right. He's worked hard to purify his heart and cleanse his hands from sin. And yet somehow... He feels plagued with affliction day in and by the context day out. Why? Why, if you strive to do what's good but end up feeling punished, should you follow this book? In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, the author blatantly tells us, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And yet the ungodly appear to escape scot-free. Let's continue with Asaph's conundrum in verse 16, Psalm 73, verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until, notice this, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Barnes notes on the Bible says this about the sanctuary of God here in verse 17. The word sanctuary in the Old Testament is applied to the tabernacle or the temple or more especially the place of the unique dwelling of God. The meaning seems to be that the difficulty was not to be solved by any mere human reasoning, by the powers of man away from God. It was to be learned in the presence of God himself and in the disclosures which he made about his divine plans and purposes. The psalmist had tried his own powers of reason, and the subject was above his reach. The only solution of the difficulty was to be obtained by a near approach to God himself. There the mystery could be solved, 
And there it was solved. Reading Psalm 73, verse 17, now in full. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. The answers to these sorts of difficult questions must be revealed by God himself. Thankfully for Asaph, it was revealed to him when he brought the matter before God in his sanctuary. And thankfully for you and me, it is revealed by God's Holy Spirit in the understanding of his plan as outlined by the annual Holy Days. In what, may you ask, did Asaph learn in the sanctuary of God about the end of wicked men? He learned that there is a righteous judge who reigns supreme, a righteous judge that will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Verse 27, For indeed, those who are far from you, Lord, shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord. In Psalm 75, verse 6 through 7, Psalm 75, verse 6 through 7, Asaph goes on to explain, For exaltation comes neither from the west, from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. One of the fundamental reasons following this book works is because there is a righteous judge. And that righteous judge will be returning to this earth as pictured by the Feast of Trumpets. As you know, not everyone will be happy to see Christ return. Just as Jesus Christ encountered resistance the first time he was here, there will be those who fight against him once again. There will be those who want to destroy him. They will want to destroy him despite him only living up to God's law of love described in the Bible. Of course, for those striving to follow God's word today, they, they will not be among those who fight against Jesus Christ. Rather, those who repented of their sins and committed their life to God at baptism, they will be with Jesus Christ and turned into spirit beings. For those who are changed in a twinkling of an eye, following this book, it ultimately works. They will inherit eternal life and become members of God's kingdom forever. But still, while the end results work out well for those who put their trust in God, what about the here and now? Why does following God's word today sometimes come with so much trouble? Well, this is where we move from the Feast of Trumpets to atonement. Turn to Revelation 19, verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. Let's read about, about events that are pictured, that take place during this time of Jesus Christ returning to the last trump and those pictured by the Day of Atonement. As we lead up to verse 11 here in Revelation chapter 19, the last trumpet has already sounded. The marriage of Jesus Christ to the church has already occurred, and Jesus Christ now appears in the sky. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness 
he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Of course, this is Jesus Christ. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now please pay attention to this imagery of this winepress. Wine symbolizes blood, and this winepress symbolizes God, the righteous judge, trampling the blood out of the wicked. We'll see this imagery used later in a corresponding prophecy, but for now, let's go to drop down to verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. His army, of course, includes the angels of God as well as the resurrected saints. The armies of this world join forces to make war with Jesus Christ and his resurrected people. Verse 20, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Notice, a very important part of Christ's mission when he returns to earth will be to remove the chief instigators who are opposed to following this book from the kingdom he is establishing here. Does God remove these people because he hates them? Well, no. He removes them because he hates the things that they do and teach. He removes them so they can no longer negatively influence and wreak havoc on the rest of humanity, who at this time are ready to learn a new way of life, a life where following God's instructions taught in this book is sought by everyone. The fact is, the benefits of following God's word cannot be fully realized until everyone is following it. Here's the reality. If two people are married and one of the spouses strives to live by God's word, but the other does not, but rather tramples all over God's commands right, left, and center, well, guess what? That marriage is not going to work. If there's a business partnership and one of the partners strives to live by God's commands, while the other goes completely in the opposite direction, lying, cheating, and stealing from their partner, well, that business partnership, it's also not going to work. If two racial groups live in the same community and one of the groups tries to treat the other according to God's word, with love, respect, and a consistent standard of laws, but the other group does not, but rather claims superiority, and or entitlement because of the color of their skin, and treats the others with disdain and contempt, well, that also is not going to work. 
God's word does work, but it must be followed. And not just followed by you, but followed by your spouse, your neighbor, your partner, your boss, your coworker, your minister, your teacher, your classmate. Everyone must live God's law of love for this world to become a true paradise for everyone. To enable that vision, we have next have events pictured by the Day of Atonement. Let's read what a whole, that Holy Day pictures in Revelation 20, verse 1. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that, here's the reason why, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. God's kingdom will not work the way it is intended to work if sin is allowed to fester and grow inside it. Therefore, Satan and his ways of sin must be removed. Only then can peace and harmony begin to encompass the entire world. When Satan is bound and those who refuse to follow God's word are removed for a thousand years, then comes a time of peace and prosperity unlike this world has ever seen. That thousand-year period, often called the millennium or world tomorrow, will be characterized by righteous leadership, with Jesus Christ functioning as the King of Kings. He will rule over numerous kings, like King David, who will be serving the people of this world without straying from God's word. And of course, along with David, there will be other kings. We know that those who are called, chosen, and faithful to God's word today will have the privilege of reigning with Jesus Christ as kings and priests in his kingdom. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his, his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. As you know, the upcoming Feast of Tabernacles pictures Jesus Christ's millennial reign. Over the coming weeks, I'm sure you will hear much more about that subject. So for now, I want to back up a little bit and talk more about this book and the necessity to follow God's words inside. You see, your job is to uphold God's law, even if or if no one around you is willing to do the same. After all, Jesus Christ first loved us while we were yet sinners. And you never know when your good example may help someone turn from evil to doing what is good. But even if it does not, and another person refuses to follow this book, what they're doing causes you a great deal of trouble, don't be deceived into thinking that their lawlessness provides you an excuse. That you also being lawless will somehow make things better. 
Because guess what? Just as when one person is unwilling to obey God's commands, and things don't work when that happens, things work even worse when all parties refuse to follow this book. Here's another reality. If two people are married and both parties trample all over God's word, right, left, and center, that marriage, it's not going to work. If there's a business partnership and both partners lie, cheat, and steal from one another, that also is not going to work. If multiple racial groups live in the same community and hate one another, and both claim superiority and or entitlement because of the color of their skin, treating the others with disdain and contempt, that also is not going to work. Or will it? Some may say, hey, I've observed a lot of wicked people who quite frankly appear to be prospering. I have seen groups of wicked people working together who seem to be doing just fine. In fact, we just read what Asaph wrote about how the wicked prosper and claim that the reason this book works is because there is a righteous judge who will return. What if, what if we just take away that future righteous judgment for the moment? What if we just simply erase trumpets and atonement from God's plan? What would happen? Where would that leave us if Jesus Christ did not return? Couldn't the wicked continue to prosper as Asaph describes they already have? Well, before answering that question, it helps to consider what Asaph and, Asaph and you and I often don't see when we observe the wicked prospering. While you and I may see a person thriving by all outward appearances, God sees what's happening going on behind the scenes. He sees how their wickedness is producing far more baggage than benefits. And that the, even the so-called benefits of their actions only last a short season. I suppose you can think about wickedness as sort of like a Ponzi scheme. Of course, a Ponzi scheme is a financial fraud in which previous investors are paid returns out of new investors' deposits. New investors must therefore continually be added to pay returns to the previous investors. At some point, every Ponzi scheme will break down because it is not generating any real value. There is no true profit to sustain it. It only gives the appearance of generating profits in order to lure investors in. But in truth, it's a scam, a trick. It's a trick that steals instead of gives. A Ponzi scheme by its very nature is not sustainable. In a similar fashion, wickedness. With wickedness, a person may derive a fleeting sense of gratification from the evil they've done. But here's the catch. That satisfaction, it's not going to last long. It won't continue to pay dividends without the person doing more, getting more, constantly stirring up more and more vile, vileness 
to sustain any fleeting sense of personal satisfaction. Ultimately, like all Ponzi schemes, nothing of value is being generated. And at some point, that void cannot be filled. I mean, think about this for a moment. Imagine if the whole world suddenly decided that no one on the planet was going to produce anything for a living. Instead, every man, woman, and child, we're going to live by theft, by stealing from one another. How long can that last? Of course, it doesn't work. Like all Ponzi schemes, wickedness is destined to collapse. It cannot be sustained because it takes instead of gives. It breaks instead of builds. It destroys instead of restores. The end of wickedness is destruction. Just as Asaph said, for indeed those who are far from you, Lord, shall perish. Or as one of Solomon's Proverbs states, Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. That's Proverbs 10, verse 2. You can look it up later, but for now, turn with me to Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, verse 20 through 21. Isaiah 57, verse 20 through 21. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't use a Ponzi scheme as a metaphor for wickedness. But it does use an analogy, an analogy to illustrate what wickedness brings. Isaiah describes a constant turmoil of mire and dirt that is stirred up by the wicked. He likens wicked people to a troubled sea that churns and thrashes. Notice Isaiah 57 verse 20. Isaiah 57 verse 20. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God. For the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. This statement is repeated in Isaiah 48, verse 22. Wicked ways stir up strife, contention, and warfare. They lead to constant turmoil and not peace. Sure, people can survive in a troubled sea for a time, just like a Ponzi scheme can survive for a season but ultimately it will come to an end. The long-term prosperity of the wicked is a fraud. It cannot be sustained. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. Let's read what would happen if Jesus Christ did not return to this earth and trumpets and atonement were erased from God's plan. To understand what would happen, we must back up to events leading up to the day uh, of Christ's return. Here on Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, all of the prophecy in Matthew 24, it provides a good overview of things that are going to occur. So let's start reading in verse 3, Matthew 24, verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is of course why it's called the Olivet Prophecy. He gave this prophecy on the Mount of Olives. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, 
and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. If you think about it, how can love be fostered when people are stealing, cheating, oppressing, and hating one another, or hurting one another? The fact is, lawless deeds lead to strife and contention among people. Instead of peace, the breaking of God's commands only produce division and warfare. And it isn't just the unrighteous who are affected. The righteous also suffer. Dropping down to verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. So what would happen if Jesus Christ did not return? Where would this world end up if a righteous judge did not step in to enact justice? Verse 22 makes it clear. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Mankind would end up destroying himself. He would wipe himself clear off the face of the earth. As the author H.G. Wells succinctly put it, if we don't end war, war will end us. That includes all of us, both the righteous and the wicked. You know, World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. But a little more than 20 years later, an even more deadly world war began. Since the end of World War II in 1945, and roughly 50 million people killed as a result, warfare has still not ceased. Some sources claim there have been more than 150 wars since that time. One of the most recent, of course, is still ongoing in Ukraine. As Matthew 24 predicts, wars will continue up until the time when Jesus Christ returns. In fact, Jesus Christ, all the prophecy, makes it clear that the world wars we have observed in the past century, those wars are only forerunners to much greater destruction that is coming. Turn to Zechariah 14, verse 2 through 4. Zechariah 14, verse 2 through 4. Now, numerous Bible prophecies, including the book of Zechariah, describe a scene where all nations will gather near Jerusalem for a final battle. The war they intend to wage would truly be the end of all wars. But it wouldn't be the end of all wars because mankind has suddenly found peace. Rather, it'd be the end of wars because there would be no mankind left to continue fighting. As the nations prepare for this great battle, Jesus Christ returns to the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem. Instead of fighting one another, the nations then turn to fight against Jesus Christ and his army. Let's read about those events captured in Zechariah chapter 14. This prophecy, of course, parallels what we previously read in Revelation 19. Zechariah 14, verse 2. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the woman ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. 
and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. It's, of course, no coincidence that Jesus Christ's Olivet Prophecy, which we just read in Matthew 24, was given at the same place where he will return to save the world from self-annihilation and, of course, to enact justice. Another place where you can read about these events is found in the book of Joel. So if you turn there to turn to Joel 3, Joel 3, verses 1 through 3. Joel 3, verses 1 through 3. Now notice in the book of Joel that not only is this final battle described, the people of Israel and Judah who have been held captive are brought back to their homeland. As this battle unfolds, there is a shuvah, shuva, a return of the people of Israel. They return to their land and they return to their God. Does this return happen, occur on the Shabbat Shuvah between trumpets and atonement? I'm not trying to claim that it does. But God's bringing back the captives clearly does occur around this time. Reading now from Joel 3, verse 1, For behold, in those days, and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is, of course, just outside of Jerusalem. And I will enter into judgment with them on account of my people, my heritage Israel, which includes the U.S. and Britain, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. Dropping down now to verse 12, Joel 3, verse 12. Let the nations be, awake, be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the wine press. remember we read this imagery earlier about a wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. You don't need to turn there, but in the book of Revelation, we are told that the blood that comes out of God's wine press will be so immense that it will fill the entire valley up to a horse's bridle. Can you imagine a river of blood of four to six feet deep? The fact is, in God's righteous judgment, many wicked people will perish. As we read earlier, the birds will come and pick the flesh of the dead world leaders, their destroyed armies and people free and slaves, both small and great. But while this catastrophic scene of bloodshed unfolds, another scene emerges, a beautiful scene. The once displaced Israelites return to their land and return to their God. A people who once departed from following God's instructions contained in this book will repent of their sins and begin a new life with God's word as their guide. To enable that vision, the children of Israel will enter into a new covenant, a better covenant, a covenant where God's commands are written on their hearts instead of on stone. Then, like a small mustard seed that takes root and grows into a marvelous tree, the knowledge of God will spread over this entire world as the waters cover the sea. Everyone, both young and old, Jew and Gentile, will come to know the God of Israel and learn to follow his laws of love contained in this book. Only then, with everyone living according to God's word, 
will this world experience a thousand years of peace? Of course, over the coming weeks, you will hear about this wonderful time pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. You will hear more about God's master plan in Jesus Christ's millennial reign on earth. You'll hear about this time, which will prove beyond a doubt that God's word works.